Some uh, questions here. So, first question: some guidance. Can you please offer some guidance for working with drowsiness in meditation? Well, there are there are short-term, long-term answers to to that. So, the um, short term is. Uh, when you when drowsiness comes apparent, or if you, if you know they have the tendency to drowsiness, then if you sit, you always sit with your eyes open. In other words, you rest. You use the sense world as a as something to support you. So you sit with your eyes open, and though they feel heavy, you keep pulling them open. You know, and you use a sense of sense contact as something to maintain a reference to. Um, Similarly, use the frame of your body, the, the sense of the skeleton, the structure. So you keep, keep your eyes open and you don't refine your attention. You, you deliberately come to simple, obvious phenomena that you can track, you can get reference to. Uh, secondly, um, you sit, you can sit also if you sit with your fingertips touching each other. There's a very, the same fingertips are very, very sensitive. So uh, then you'll notice as soon as you start to slip off, you lose that. So you want to catch the drowsiness before it gets too overwhelming. It's a bit late then, because you also, when you get drowsy, you lose your wits. <laughs> You're gonna, you know. So even having your hands up like that, if you have a tendency that way, and just it's not a lot of pressure, but it does require... You know, a sense sensitivity. So sometimes you're just feeling a bit, and then because the fingertips are, are give you a lot of information, give the chitter a lot of information. So you 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 know, in that way you increase uh, sensitivity, and it also gives you a very immediate readout when you're losing it. Um. Secondly, you can stand up. You meditate. It's the standing position. Uh, keep your eyes open. When you stand. Uh, then it's not very likely that you might still feel drowsy, but you don't get overwhelmed by it. Yeah. So, you know, drowsiness is something that human beings experience. It's to do with energy, and you can't really not have drowsiness, but you can. Well, you can certainly reduce it. Uh, but uh, you can also use something to stabilize so you don't get lost in it. So if you stand, feel the pressures in your feet, feel yourself feeling really sleepy, but the balancing sense will keep you, give you enough presence to work with the drowsiness. And the drowsiness is it tends to shut everything down. So you've got something that more or less forces the body to not shut down. Uh, uh, and then also walking up and down, walking backwards and forwards. You know, that's another simple means of, of working against drowsiness. Now, also, you can work 
still feeling quite low. So in the monasteries, we often have all-night sittings. We don't often have them, but we have them from time to time. Some places they have them every week. The chances of not feeling drowsy are approximately zero. <laughs> uh, so then you just, you know, it's incredible, really. Uh, you, just, you just have to let the mind collapse, more or less, but in some sense, but just using walking, holding the body up, walking up and down, opening the eyes, just so you, you don't expect the drowsiness to go away. You just hold something so you don't get overwhelmed by it. And you work with the aversion to drowsiness. Like, I feel so I just feel horrible. I hate this state. I feel, oh, yeah. Why can't I go to bed? You know? So you work with all that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, okay, drowsiness is just, that's an energy form. That's quite a tough practice, actually. But it's good to do it even for half an hour. You know, because... Uh, Essentially, uncomfortable feeling is part of life. And uncomfortable energy is part of life. We get sick, uh, we lose balance, we feel groggy, we feel altitude sickness, we feel disease, we feel knocked out, we feel jet lag, we feel acute pain. Well, you know, nobody likes it, but there it is. So the chances of just swinging through life on a kind of cruising through pleasant and manageable feelings is, again, approximately zero. So how do we create space uh, for unpleasant feeling, unpleasant sense? So that's, that's the big challenge, that's the big test. But one has to, uh, if you're going to be accomplished in cultivation, then you've got to find some sense of being able to be present with the disagreeable, that which one earnestly and reasonably wishes would go away. Because it doesn't go away. Life is certainly not fair, according to my perspectives. How much of my perspectives really, you know, affect the world? (laughs) Not very much, did it? So, okay, but we do have that possibility to sense the wanted to close down and then opening up to unpleasant feeling. Now you, then you can track drowsiness, like a puckering around the eyes, a sense of everything in the face closing down, a sense of the body turning into jelly. And, okay, here it is, you know, and then can I be with that? So we have to form a fairly wide frame of reference to abide with that. So walking, standing, sitting may subdue the drowsiness, but it won't necessarily stop it happening. So then, because we have to work with it. The mental approach to to dullness, which is not quite the same as drowsiness, it means a certain kind of flat, dull state of mind, is to use investigation uh, to sharpen, sharpen the mental energy. So you can start to point what's happening, what's happening, to keep the mind awake by pointing. You can point to places in your body, your knees, your shoulders, your fingers, your other shoulder, how's this sensation, how's that sensation, how's this sensation. You just do it, set up a regular routine of sharpening attention on particular points in your body. The mind has to work. And working the mind yeah, um, helps to keep that, keep, develop mental acuity. And 
as we've seen some of these questions, as I'll say in another question, with unpleasant feeling, uh, you know, what can what can one most readily do about it is develop non-aversion to it. Now, where is the feeling? Is it in the body? Is it in the mind? Yeah. Where is it in the energy? Well, what's the first place we can work out is perhaps my attitude towards unpleasant feeling. I want it to go away. Well, yeah, that's natural, but it doesn't work. So can I find a place where I can maintain awareness of unpleasant feeling, look at those mental responses and actions, and begin to be more patient and even develop goodwill towards a sick, drowsy, painful <coughs> body. The, um, the long response, or the long um, approach, is to um, level one's lifestyle from huge rushing to stopping. You know, So I think, by and large, many people come from lifestyles whereby there is actually a hyper, what I would call hyperactivity. It may seem normal. Uh, to me, it's hyper. Uh, in that there's not enough space to regenerate. There's a lot of driven. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, the drive is coming from the outside of us being pulled along, pressurized. Um, so then when the, that switches off, clonk, you know, because we haven't really internalized that energy our energy has been dictated to by what's around us telling us what to do and so forth when those switch off suddenly our energy source goes because our energy has been hooked up to particular strong senses of got to do got to be got to have stimulation and the more one can level one's lifestyle out um, then you know still get, you don't get such violent swings up and down. You know, it's more like more more steady uh, lifestyle. It's certainly conducive. Um, so, you know, <coughs> that's kind of how, in the long run, one practices trying to get your energy coming from internal wish and volition and generation of skillful intentions. Follow those rather than the stimulation compulsions of the world around. I know it's not easy. So those are some pointers to, but for right now, you know, since just work with body, standing, sitting, walking, uh, dealing with aversion, holding the, the body up, keeping the eyes open, you can, all, fingertips, also you can do, um, as a kind of fairly radical but reasonably effective uh, means of staying awake is stop breathing. <laughs> so this is, I do this sometimes. You, know, you breathe all the way out and then don't breathe in. The likelihood of falling asleep, well that's happening at zero. You feel this kind of... So you leave, you hold it for, you know, ten seconds more than is comfortable. 
till you feel you feel the pressure, then let the breath come in really slowly, like you're breathing through a straw. And you get a huge rush of energy. So, and then you relax and do it again. Do that for two or three minutes. It will certainly shift energy around. And it helps to reset one's energy system. So that's just a little knack or pyre. There's another one. The ethical basis is what one allows to feel settled, calm and bright. Yet in a complex world, being settled and being ethical seem mutually exclusive. The continued consumption of eggs and dairy and the resultant holocaust and institutionalised sexism within a wide array of Buddhist organisations are two examples of Buddhist ethics failing to establish basic ethical standards. The idea of resting into this sort of, quote, goodness, unquote, leaves me feeling distinctly unsettled. Given these concerns, how can I feel settled in this practice? And again, there's a sort of short answer, which is you don't take settled in other people's ethics, you take settledness in your own, essentially. Because um, that's, that's the only thing you can really settle into, because that's what you're directly experiencing yourself, your own quality of harmlessness or goodness or brightness or, you know, whatever that is. That's what you, that's what you settle into and you undertake to train so that you can get that sense of self-respect and feeling settled in your own field of, of goodness. You can't get, in a complex world as you suggest, because it's complex, it's that you can't really feel settled in it. And, you know, these two items, which may disturb you, when you, you know, when you look at the world in general, phew, you know, how do you live in this world at all? Settled in this world at all? Um, with, phew, you know, do I have to name it all? So one can certainly feel a sense of, you know, if we take this uh, human complexities of karma, and delusion and ignorance that we see can experience, can note, or can sense, or you know, feel that we know in the world around us. Then there's no way you could take you can't take refuge in that. But that actually that isn't a direct experience. You know, direct experience is your own thing, and also the way that you the way that your mind is. Sensing or forming a uh, judgment or an opinion about other things that are perhaps not what you're doing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And um, then you can't really find, also that can be, that can be, you know, really uh, unsettling because. It's, you can't really, right now, determine or decide or even really know, actually, directly, another person's ethical experience. 
You can know what you think about it, or what you assume it to be, but you don't directly know what's happening in them. And if you did, well, for a start, you'd be a mind reader, but you probably would, you know, not just look from the outside. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when we have isms, like vegetarianism, or Buddhism, or sexism, or racism, you know, we're, cert- we're apprehending something which we can see from the outside, and, you know, and we can feel disappointed by it, irritated by it, gladdened by it, you know, but we're still actually seeing it from outside it. And, you know, actually there isn't a direct way of resolving that. The first thing to resolve is one's feelings of disappointment, disgruntledness, this isn't proper, this isn't right. That's the first thing we have to resolve. Because naturally, when you directly approach another person with, you know, there's something wrong with you, what do you think they're going to do? You know, they're going to say, oh, that's really wonderful, please tell me more. <laughs> you know, they're going to say, well, okay, bud, let's wear you. Let's have a look at you then. You know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be, um, not going to re- result in um, a resolution. Um, so, you know, the Buddha did set up particular systems for, it's called admonishment of other people who one finds after a period of time knowing them directly, not just reading about them or thinking about them, knowing directly, and really you can't talk to an ism. You need to talk to people. And, uh, you know, he says, well, when you, you really know for yourself that someone is setting up, you know, is doing things that you find you think are unskillful, you know it's for their harm. You know they're doing themselves harm. Uh, so therefore, the sense of admonishment is to approach that person with a mind of compassion and goodwill and find the right time and the right place and you speak in truth, in fact, what you actually directly know and observe for yourself or at least you say, is this true? You question, do you see it? Is it true? You know, that your organisation is set up as a sexist organisation, they might say, oh, no, I don't see that. Perhaps they are, perhaps they are. Yeah. Um, so you've got to get that one there, first of all. You know, so the, the, the Buddhist approach is that, first of all, a person has to be recognise their own f- failing or their own blind spots. And so that one senses of a mind of compassion and goodwill to say what's factual, if, it's, if you don't know, you have to question until they acknowledge. Uh, oh yeah, I see what you mean. I didn't realise that. And then you speak at the right time and the right place with the heart of goodwill. So that's the kind of a, approach that the Buddha recommended for when one feels, observes other beings acting in ways that one finds this is not skillful, this is not appropriate, this is not wholesome then with because recognizing they are you know accumulating bad karma then you you speak to them directly with a mind of compassion
So, you know, it's like if you ask somebody who ate eggs about resultant holocaust, you know, they might have another way of looking at it. If you went to a Buddhist organization and asked about sexism, they might have another way of looking at it. You know. Certainly living inside a Buddhist community which is, um, you know, sexist in some ways, it definitely there's a separation and there's a higher and a lower hierarchical system that doesn't conform to contemporary standards, then um, naturally one gets a fair amount of, of um, questioning and sometimes even some, um, you know, some rather challenging remarks made. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you also say, well, okay, let's look at this, you know, piece at a time and what did the Buddha lay down and what are the standards we conform to? And she find out, well, yeah, the Buddha did set up something hierarchical and discriminated between men and women. And, uh, you know, so it doesn't conform to 21st century. Um, so, you know, um, what are we going to do? Uh, trying to, to re- you know, re- remain... Uh, loyal to what the Buddha set up and tweak and adjust what we can in 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 that context. And you probably recognize that quite a number of people are making some efforts. Essentially, it's also important when we see or we recognize or we consider people are making errors to also recognize they're also making a lot of non-errors, that uh, people who eat eggs may be very generous loving people, um, you know, most Buddhists are generally non-violent, don't carry guns, don't drink, don't punch each other. Um, you know, so you say, yeah, yeah, this bit's not so good, but then it helps to moderate one's sense of of you know, black and white, you know. You're either, you know, where you see some particular piece and make a generalisation out, out of it. Those things do, I think, help to broaden one's perspectives. You know, so for myself, certainly, you know, it's not just Buddhists that annoy, but disappoint me. It's human beings in general. Um, I'm a human, and uh, frankly, I'm really rather sometimes extremely disappointed at human behaviour, considering the potentials we have. And I can get pretty, you know, wrangled up about it. But um, okay, so what do I do? You know, I bring forth the good. I recognize we're in a a world afflicted with ignorance. I work against ignorance and craving where I can. Um, I don't give up. And I don't get lost in uh, too much negative cynicism or bitterness. Keeps the spirit alive. Another question. Today, perhaps tomorrow will be different. I'm having a hard time opening to nature, to the wild as a model, as a teacher, certainly as a refuge. One of the qualities, one of its qualities you praised this morning was its ability to hold all things without preference. Life, death, it doesn't care. Instead of opening, (laughs) 
my heart contracts in the face of such supreme indifference. Any suggestions? <laughs> yeah, good one. Uh, yeah. Well, I generally myself feel less contracted with nature than I do with human society, which maintains not just supreme indifference, but also direct hostility, brutality and callousness. And uh, so it generally does, I do feel myself, you know, really quite, you know, closing or, or difficult to maintain openness. Open, I feel much more open with nature. I've learned to, over time and through practice, accept my death. There's nothing I can really, I can prolong life for a bit more, probably. But, you know, it's going to get me in the end. That's, that's what happened through getting born. Um, so that's all nature, birth, death. And there's no way out of that realm on the sensory level. Mm. So nature makes that pretty clear. It doesn't beat about the bush. This is like this. Uh, but th- also what it indicates to me is a sense there's no blame, there's no judgment, there's no, you know, take, it's no like, I don't like you, therefore... <laughs> So it's free of that personal contraction. (coughs) It's free of the the personal contraction to something wrong with me. Nature, death will take the good, the bad, the wise, the stupid, any time. So, yeah. So when we've accepted that, then we begin to say, how marvellous that still from this world of nature, fresh air is given, water is given, food is given, breath is given, life forces are given. The possibility to abide on this fragile raft of life is here. Yeah? And it's also saying, look, you know, you have this, right? This raft is not going to die for long. You know, you have this precious life open to that and the, the impending death and the way there's no negotiation with it actually heightens the beauty of life. Without death, how callous and indifferent we would be. You know, death, the, our own death, the impending and uncertainty of it, if we can open to that, makes us deeply appreciative of this chance, this opportunity for life, for consciousness. Mm. And we look at each other recognizing we are all the about to die. You know, not dead yet, but all about to die. <laughs> that's, that's sensory nature. When you look at other beings like that, then you think, oh, let's just don't waste time. Don't be petty. You know, let's you know, do good to each other. Uh, let's not be indifferent to each other. So that quality comes from accepting the sensory world of nature. 
And yeah, death perhaps isn't such we're so happy about. But meanwhile, this whole natural realm is supporting us. Producing air, water, food, stuff that we cannot produce ourselves. It also reminds us of rhythmic processes of spring, summer, autumn, winter. We're in that. Uh, So it adjusts us to real time, to to the real time of the sensory world like that. It takes us out of our helter-skelter drives, out of a sense of sequential time, time, no, sensory time is, is circular. So that's kind of calming and sobering. Mm. And we begin to also recognize how nature, the force of nature, when it's no longer poisoned or toxic, will come back, will regenerate. And this is inspirational too, because it reminds us, perhaps it reminds me, you know, of, that. that's the model of it, that's what I'm presenting as a model, you know, despite the amount of, you know, damage you can be experiencing yourself, there is the possibility of fresh vitality coming through. And the sensory nature, of course, is only part of human nature. So it's an image, a model, but then it's also a model that says there's a specific, you know, quality to human beings that's that's above this, the possibility of liberation from this world of birth and death. And it's giving us the requisites to do that as well. So see what um, the openness, the freshness, the brightness, the vitality of nature does contemplate that quality as you move around in it. Contemplate the fact it gives you all the space. It doesn't ask anything of you. It doesn't judge, it doesn't push, it doesn't sneer, it doesn't scorn. Enjoy that. That's the model to pick up in all things. Last, another question here, last question. I was in a car accident almost nine years ago. I still have constant pain from whiplash, specifically my right neck, shoulder and arm. You spoke today of somatic pain and memory, I believe, settling into it. The need to clear the pain to be able to go deeper into meditation. Is there any other technique or suggestion to deal with a pain such as this to clear the energy so it doesn't block the path to going deeper with gratitude? Well, I think the pain from whiplash sounds not like so much somatic pain as sensory pain. So this is to do with physical damage rather than energy blocks, you know, or energy distortions. 
Although, the, you know, certainly if you have, um, you know, an area of your body that's damaged, there will also be a somatic quality to that. Mm. Now, the, the physical pain, mm. clearly, you know, obviously there are things you do with exercise and medical stuff and things like that that really, you know, I mean, you must have addressed that, looked into that. Mm. Now, the other sense of it, the bit that one can do with meditation is basically um, to open to painful feeling. So that instead of a sense of resistance to it, or wishing it would go away, or trying to change it into something else, we in fact yield or soften around painful feeling and get the sense of the, so it's your right shoulder, so contemplate, you know, from your right shoulder across your chest, down into your trunk, into your pelvis, the whole thing, so it's like you widen the area and feel where it's not painful and feel where it is painful and bring your awareness from the place that's not painful which where the experience can be quite open and light and bring that towards that which is painful. So we take your cue from the areas of your body that are not hurt or afflicted where there isn't any tension sense the energy of that and you begin to direct that energy towards the area that's uncomfortable so it's like breathing through it and this may not actually affect the physical aspect of your body but could profoundly affect the attitude towards it the mental resistance towards it the frustration with it and it may be the case that over time, what will happen is that it's sort of there, but it's not bothering you. You know, it's, it's not, you're not, you're not getting, your, your attention isn't getting drawn towards it. You've accepted it. Now, mental, mental pain <coughs> is caused by favouring and opposing. Mental pain is caused by favouring and opposing. <clears throat> so clearly we can experience mental pain, overfeeling, you know, opposing or feeling offended by or hurt by the sight or the actions of another person. We can feel mental pain because we don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course we can feel mental pleasure when we favour you know, sights, sounds, touches and so forth. We like that, therefore it feels pleasant. So it's the, actually sights have no pleasure in them and no pain in them. But our perception of them as delightful, we favour that, it gives rise to mental pleasure. Yeah, so if we see something as unpleasant or disagreeable, it gives rise to, I don't want that, and therefore there's mental pain. And two, uh, So mental pain and physical pain are two different things. 
Physical pain is inevitable in a body. There's only something you can do about it. You can stretch, you can massage, you can, you know. Um, that's you can do to a degree, but you can also recognize that physical pain is inevitable. Um, what could be done is to resolve the mental pain, which is the objecting, the resisting, the frustration, the trying to make it go away, those opposing, 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 builds up a huge amount of mental agitation, therefore one can't settle. Now, because physical pain, the feeling of physical pain is is so volatile, so we're so immediately triggered by that, it can also help, this is a skillful means to visualize that place in your body, and visualize those sensations that you find painful, jabbing, jagged, rough, tearing, however, and just take it to a visual sense, like, lines of light uh, shooting through, daggers of light, lightning flashes, however that feels, however that seems to you. So if you translate it into a visual um, experience, then it takes you off the edge of the physical consciousness, tactile consciousness. Tactile consciousness is highly attuned to disagreeable feeling. Visual consciousness has no disagreeable feeling in it at all. So if you visualize, even imagine what that would look like, does it look like rocks, does it look like daggers, does it look like um, fire, does it look like knives, then it, you know, what fits? And you get to see that in your mind's eye and imagine it. Then your mind is forming an image that you're being much more conscious of, so you're no longer feeling so under the power of it, because now you're rising up and you're handling it. Yeah. And you're directing your attention towards it, rather than away from it. You're saying, let me look at the colour of that sensation. Let me look at the how big it is. Is it running from the shoulder down to the chest? Is it down the arm? Let me look at that. Draw a picture of it. This, this act of mental absorption does not oppose the pain. doesn't favour it either. Right? So in the non-opposing, it's unlikely to favour it, but in the non-opposing, the mind comes out of its mental dukkha. Hmm. This is not so easy by any means, but uh, there's a line. If one can, if it's possible, also the other recommended medium is to concentrate or focus your mind, deepen attention into the non-painful and breathing in and out. Make that the center, develop that. Absorb the mind into that, 
and then the pain, physical pain, is kind of like somebody next door. It's there, but it's no longer, you know, jabbing itself into you. So it's offered for your consideration, and thank you for the questions. I'm sure in some ways some of those questions are everybody's questions. Everybody has pain and, and you know, feels upset by other people's behavior and so forth. So thank you for your questions because I'm sure that they affect and helpful for other people. <laughs> 